We'll be reading this morning from Isaiah chapter 42, verses 5 through 7. 42, verses 5 through 7. If it's convenient with you, please stand for the reading of God's word. This is what the God, the Lord, says. The creator of the heavens, who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you, and I will make you to be a covenant for the people and a light for the Gentiles, to open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeons those who sit in darkness. Please. I'm going to attempt to do a little unscientific, scientific demonstration for you. I am confident that any of our engineering and science professors could do it much better, or my son or any of the other engineering students could do it much better, or probably any sixth grader who's taken a basic science class could probably do this much better. But maybe you'll at least get the point. So here I have a yo-yo. Don't worry. I'm not going to do yo-yo tricks. I don't even think I can make a yo-yo work. But I'm going to extend the yo-yo to the end of the string. And then I'm going to try to spin it like this. Heads up over there. This could be bad for y'all. Or, well, I guess we're safe here. So here we have the center of the rotation is my hand holding this end of the string. And we have the yo-yo on the end going around the circle. And so there is a force called the centripetal force that is holding the yo-yo in this circular pattern. It is holding it to this circle, and in fact, it is directing it inward toward the center of rotation, my hand, centripetal, with a P in the middle. You probably have heard of centrifugal force with an F in the middle. And that is an apparent force that is also happening. My arm is getting tired. <laughs> Centrifugal force is what is pushing from the center of rotation, pushing the object to the outside of the center. And you feel this if you are riding in a passenger seat in a car and all of a sudden the driver takes a quick left turn and your head hits the window. It feels like it's pushing you to the outside. Okay. Think of it in a different illustration. Do you remember the old merry-go-rounds? Those death traps, do you remember those? That's about what ours looked like. It was all lopsided, sharp metal edges. Some creepy old guy there, I don't know. <laughs> that's a grandpa, that's a grandpa. And so if you, what we used to do is jump on this thing and we would try to get an older kid or the strongest kid to be on the, on the ground and just push this thing as hard as he could. And we would try to hang on for dear life and usually end up kind of dropping off of this thing. The last one on is the winner. Or the last one to get so dizzy he pukes is the winner. Again, not a safe thing. I don't think they even make these anymore. If they do, they're probably made out of cushions or something like that not like the good old days. But if you're on the ground looking at this, 
you see the force that is holding the kids inward, pushing them toward the center of the rotation. It is keeping them on the circular path there, centripetal with a P in the middle. But if you're on the merry-go-round, you know that you feel this different force. It pushes you toward the outside. And so you grab on and you hang on as you go around in that circle, but you can feel the force pushing you to the outside. And that's the main difference. Centripetal is a force that moves inward toward the center of rotation. Centrifugal moves from the center of rotation, an apparent force, extending outward. Now, if you think about those two words, here you go, I don't know what to do with this. Heads up. Don't say you never got anything out of a sermon, okay? (laughs) If you think about these two words, it's interesting that Bible scholars have actually used these two words to look at Israel's role as God's elect, God's nation. Throughout the Old Testament, we read about Israel. And so the debate is, and there is a debate, is Israel's role as God's elect people Do they function with this centripetal force that calls them inward, away from the world, that that causes them to be exclusive, that causes them to set themselves apart from the world, or is there a different force at work causing them to exert influence on the world, causing them to go from that center of rotation, if you will, extending outward to the world, to the nations. And there's a great debate on this because they are, after all, God's elect, God's chosen nation. And so there is a sense of exclusivity there. They are chosen out of the world, set apart. At the same time, you read throughout the Old Testament, and there seems to be a responsibility, a calling for them to be a blessing to the world at large. You say, okay, that sounds reasonable, I understand it, I get it, but why does that matter for us? Because the same debate, the same question is often asked of the church. What is our role? What is our function in the world? And it's not just Israel of old, it is the called out people, the ecclesia, the church of today, including us. Are we to be a group that draws inward or are we to be a group that extends and exerts influence outward and if we're telling the truth and we should sometimes it's just easier to keep to ourselves isn't it sometimes it's just easier to keep to ourselves because the world seems like a dangerous place there's lots of evil there's lots of sin to use the metaphor we're using throughout this series there is a lot of darkness in the world So sometimes it's easier just to retreat and be around like-minded people where there is safety, where there is security, where you know what to expect. And we don't want the culture to influence us. And by the way, we should recognize that the church has always been embedded in a larger culture. Now that culture changes over time, but you can't escape the fact that the church functions in a larger culture. And that culture has some influence on the church. For example, we have church buildings. 
In many ways, that's a cultural influence. We have big screens, PowerPoints, and live streams, and websites, and all of those are cultural influences. And we get that. At the same time, we know that there is a culture out there that is anti-Christian or post-Christian, whatever you want to call it. It is a culture that orders itself with values that oppose the kingdom values of God. And we don't want that culture to infiltrate our hearts and our lives and our minds and the church. And so it's easier sometimes just to keep to ourselves. Think about the coronavirus. As anxiety and fear continues to increase about this virus, what are we doing? We're saying, no longer should we travel to these places. We're extracting ourselves from the world. We're drawing in where it's safe. Let's not make contact with people there because we put ourselves at risk. And extreme measures are even putting people in isolation. No exposure to people at all. By the way, I saw, I think just yesterday, in some country that is struggling with this, rather than two guys shaking hands, they come together and they just stick out their foot and tap feet so they don't spread the germs. And I thought, you know, that's probably something we should talk about doing anyway. The less germs, the better. But the same idea happens in the church. There is a virus out there. There is darkness out there. There is evil out there. And so we need to pull back. We need to gather around and rally around and affirm what we know and affirm who we are and also be afraid of the world. And yet for Israel, although they were God's elect, they were called out, didn't they also have some responsibility to the world? And don't we have some responsibility to the world? This culture that we're talking about, don't we as the church have some some role in shaping that culture and influencing that culture? I think we do. And I think if we go back, we see that that was God's intention all along. And so it begins at the beginning. God created the universe. As we said a couple of weeks ago, he spoke light into the darkness. And with those words, let there be light. Light was shed on all of creation, not just a segregated group, but all of creation. But it didn't take long for darkness to invade. By Genesis chapter 3, just three chapters into the Bible, darkness falls. Humankind decides they want to rebel against God. They want to do their own thing. They want to go their own direction. They want to be autonomous and independent. And so they disobey God. Darkness falls. And then by chapter 6, the sixth chapter in the Bible, Genesis chapter 6, there is evil and wickedness and darkness seemingly in all corners of civilization, and God decides to clean the slate, to start over. And he saves one righteous family, and with the salvation of that family, he initiates his plan, his global plan, his universal plan, to instill light, eternal light, into the darkness of our world. And so he chooses to do that through one man. 
we hear his story in Genesis chapter 12. Look at Genesis 12, verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, Go from your country, your people, and your father's household to the land I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. I will make your name great, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God told Abram that he would be the nucleus of this new nation, this important nation of people, and that there would be great blessing for this nation, but not only for this nation, but from this nation, or better said, through this nation. Well, to whom? He says, to all people on earth. You see, from the very beginning, God instilled in his people a missional mindset, a a burden for the well-being of the world, a, a global perspective that sees beyond our own borders. From the very beginning, that's what God had in mind. Certainly, that's what he had in mind for his people. Now, when we look back at this passage all these generations later, and having the full canon of the scriptures, we read Genesis 12, where God says, I'm going to bless all people or all nations through you, Abram, who is later Abraham. We say, okay, we get that because ultimately, John chapter 1, the light that was coming into the world happens. The word becomes flesh, and Jesus walks among us, and he dies for us, and by the power of God, he has risen from the dead, and through him and his sacrifice, all peoples on earth, including us, are blessed, and that is absolutely right, and we're going to talk more about that next week, but maybe this calling, this commissioning in Genesis 12 of Abram is also a little more local, a little more personal for Israel. I contend that it was God's plan all along that his people be a light to the nations. The psalmist writes in Psalm 67, verse 1, May God be gracious to us and bless us and make his face shine on us so that your ways may be known on earth, your salvation among all nations. This is the prayer of the psalmist. This we might say, was one of their songs in their songbook, one of the songs that they would sing as they worshiped God. And in this song, what does it say? God, shine your face on us. Pour out your blessing on us. Give us your light. But it's not simply to soak up that light, to absorb that light, but to be a channel of that light, to be a reflection of that light to the world so that all nations would know of your salvation. You see, in his people, God says, there is a burden for the world. You have a role to play that extends beyond your borders. God says, I'm working in you and through you to bring blessing to all nations. We continue in verse 42 of, or chapter 42 of Isaiah. Another song, these are called the servant songs of Isaiah. Isaiah 42, verse 1. Here is my servant whom I uphold, my chosen one in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him, and he will bring justice to the nations. You say, okay, who is this servant we're talking about? Is it Isaiah, the prophet of God? 
Is it another prophet? Is it someone else? Is it referring to Jesus? After all, it is prophecy. Well, if you look at the text, it seems that the servant here is actually the nation of Israel. Israel is his collective servant. And you'll see that throughout these passages, these servant songs. So if Israel is the servant, much like the church is the servant of God today, sometimes I hear prayers, God, help us to be your hands and your feet in this world. And that prayer is basically saying, help us as the church be your servant in the world. And so if Israel is the servant talked about in these servant songs, what is the servant to do? He is, they are, to bring justice to the nations. And I don't think that means simply disciplining nations that oppose God, although that is probably included in that. I think he goes on to tell us exactly what that looks like. Back to Isaiah 42, verse 5. This is what God the Lord says, the creator of the heavens who stretches them out, who spreads out the earth with all that springs from it, who gives breath to its people and life to those who walk on it. I, the Lord, have called you in righteousness. I will take hold of your hand. I will keep you and will make you to be a covenant for the people. And what else? A light for the Gentiles. Some versions say a light for the nations. To open eyes that are blind, to free captives from prison, and to release from the dungeon those who sit in darkness. That's the justice. The justice we talked about earlier, the servant of God, what does he do? He brings justice to all people he brings justice to all nations well what does that mean what does that look like right here he says it's making the things that are wrong right it's bringing sight to the blind it's freeing the captives it's giving light to those who are imprisoned by darkness so Israel was expected to be this kind of light to the world to reveal to the world a God who is obviously sovereign above their pagan gods, but also a God who is loving and just and merciful, a God who cares enough to give sight to the blind, to set captives free. After all, he set his captives, Israel, free. You see, Israel was to be an active witness to the world. They were to be a light to the nations. As God blessed them, That blessing was to be a living sermon for the world around them. You say, well, I get that. God is blessing them. God is doing unique things among them, miracles even among them. He is delivering them. The other nations may see that. But there has to be a connection, doesn't there? Just like when we go rake someone's leaves or we go serve someone, If we don't do it in the name of Christ and somehow communicate that, how do people know? They might just think, oh, they're pretty nice people. And so this isn't necessarily a passive light that Israel has. I think God calls them to be active. A few chapters later in Isaiah 49, another of these servant songs, verse 5, And now the Lord says, He who formed me in the womb to be his servant... There's that word again, servant, to bring Jacob back to him and gather Israel to himself. For I am honored in the eyes of the Lord and my God has been my strength. He says, 
It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will make or I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. You see God's plan there. God's intention for Israel was not just to withdraw was not just to have this force that moved them toward the center of their rotation, to turn their backs on the world. No, his intention was for them to exert influence in the world. Now, they often mess this up. And unfortunately, I think we often mess this up as well. Israel was meant to be both a come and see and go and tell, or maybe go and show people of God do you know the difference come and see is I'm going to stay right here and you come over and see and that's good and that's important we call it embrace when people come our way from the community we want to be hospitable we want to be kind we want to make them feel at home we want to share with them what it is that we have and that is joy and salvation and forgiveness but that's not enough And I don't think that was the only plan for Israel that God had. That maybe nations will stumble across what we're doing here in our camp. You see, it's also about going and telling. That's what we talk about when we talk about go and connect. Go to so many places in this world, all these flags representing some of those places. Connect with people at work and in the community. Why? To show them the light to reflect the light and the love of God. In many ways, Israel was meant to be a holy witness. I like that phrase, holy witness. Holy means set apart. You see, there's some tension there. You're set apart from the world, but to witness to the world, you have to engage the world. And it sometimes is a tricky balance for us as Christians, us as the church. Where do you draw the line between the culture and the world influencing us and us influencing the world? It's not always easy. But the answer certainly isn't to just retreat inward and never engage the world with the message of the gospel. You see, the nature of light is to shine. Very simple. And that's why Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, you are the light of the world. He says, a town built on a hill cannot be hidden neither do people light a lamp put it under a bowl instead they put it on its stand and it gives light to everyone in the house in the same way let your light so shine so that people see your good deeds and they praise your father in heaven you see that's go and tell the nature of light is to actively shine in the dark if you're wandering around in the woods at night and it's dark and it's and you're cold and you're looking for help and you see a fire maybe off in the distance. It's one thing to try to go and find that fire and that warmth. It's another thing for someone from that fire to come and find you and maybe have a light that guides you to that fire or maybe even better yet, who stops right there and builds a fire for you right there. Light is meant to be shown or shined in the darkness. And so for Israel... Back then and for the church today, we are to be a light to the nations. We are to be both, hey, come and see, come and experience what God is doing here. But also, we are to be those who go 
and tell. Our desire is not to be people who simply soak up the provision and the blessings of God, but to be reflectors of that light, to be channels of those blessings. It is our calling. It is our role as ambassadors of Christ. It's been 30 years. That's amazing. 30 years ago, God called Kent Risley and a small group of college students to drive 900 miles into the rural mountain villages of Mexico. 30 years ago. And over the past 30 years, that trip and that experience has evolved, it has changed, but the impact that God has made through that trip, even now that it is centered and focused mainly on South Texas, it is amazing still the far-reaching effect that God has had through that trip. So as we think about what it means to be a light to the nations, I can assure you that those little mountain villages, they were dark. There was a lot of darkness there. Literally, they were dark. They didn't have lights. But spiritually, they were in the dark. And God used people here to bring light to that valley. And so as we think about what it means to be a light to the nations, as we think about next week, Commission Sunday, we want you to watch this video that tells very briefly the story of what God has been doing in that spring break mission trip. Watch this video. Well said. I just started thinking about that trip. And, and if you've gone, you, you, can, you know the impact of that trip. But just think over 30 years, the, the far-reaching or the ripple effect that that trip has had on people's hearts and lives, the change, the transformation that has taken place certainly on, on many, many hundreds and hundreds of college students who are now spread all over the globe, and obviously other people here who've gone on that trip, but the people in Mexico, the people in South Texas and McAllen, the impact that God has made in those lives. And this is just one effort that we do here. We do many. Look at the flags. We want to be a light to the nations, Mexico and Canada and Ecuador and Nicaragua, in Germany, in Ireland, in Guatemala, and, and of course in the U.S. We want to be a light to the nations. Next week as we celebrate what God is doing and as we partner with God by giving sacrificially, I hope that you will embrace that opportunity with joy and that you will give sacrificially so that we can continue to support missionaries and send mission trips like this one so that God can work through us to bring light to this dark world. As we wrap up, maybe today as you think about your own life, you're tired of walking in the dark. You need the light of the Lord in your life, and so you're ready to claim Jesus as the Lord, as the Savior of your life. You're ready to confess that he is the Son of God, that he died, that he was buried, but that God didn't leave him there. He raised him again. And you're ready to be buried in that water. We won't leave you there. We'll bring you up in this new life, clothed with Christ. Maybe today is the day you're ready to make that choice. Or maybe we can encourage you, pray for you. We'd be happy to do that. A couple of our shepherds and their wives will be in the parlor, a room right behind me. You can exit the auditorium and make your way there. They would certainly be happy to encourage you and pray for you. Or you can come down to the front. 
and we will help you as a church family. We invite you to come as we stand and sing.